0: This week's episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 20th of April 2022 at home in Wicklow and it is a discussion of tolerance in in a social sense. Uh, this discussion is prompted by a hate crime that happened in Ireland in the last week or so that left two Came in, murdered and it just got me thinking about the nature of social tolerance and intolerance and I wanted to really look at what the template is for personal freedom and what we as a society agree to tolerate and what we agree to be intolerant of and which of those two positions is the greater and i refer to the the thinking of two english philosophers from the past um john locke the empiricist and john stuart mill the utilitarian both of whom belong to a tradition of political and civic liberalism that informs the uh the, the nature of the episode today so yeah that's uh, that's what's coming up it's um i suppose it's kind of it, it, it's heavy enough but i think it's a i think it's a good subject to to look into and i reflect on my own uh thoughts around homophobia and um uh lgbtqi um, the, the the struggle of that community, and you know what the stakes are, um, and crucially, how I feel about a person's individual sexuality having nothing to do with a, a value system or someone else's morality or ethics, uh, as long as it takes place within consensual uh, terms. So. Yeah, so there you go. That's uh, that's what's coming up. There's also sorry. There's also a bit of a rant, <laughs> a rant about uh, Irish politics and Irish governance, and an opportunity I took to express my feelings in the recent census that we had here. Um, and I also talk about uh, media, media censorship media sort of mono narrative and cancel culture so actually now that i think about it there's quite a lot in today's episode but hopefully it all hangs together so come and hang with me for an hour and 15 minutes or so and um see if you can get something out of this okay i'll see you around the corner cheers not gonna change my mind living the dream Hi, my name is Dara Clear, and you're listening to the Clear Out. Welcome, welcome to it. My goodness, it is a beautiful day, a beautiful day. Clear blue sky, sun beaming down. Absolutely gorgeous. I was teaching a Tai Chi class out in the garden earlier, and it really was fantastic. I don't know if the Tai Chi was fantastic, but the weather was. <laughs> ah dear so how are you how are you right now how are you this very moment of your life are you pedaling are you pedaling smoothly along the along the flat or is it an uphill struggle at the moment I, i i have a terrible suspicion that there's a lot of uphill struggling going on and uh yeah there's just a lot there's a lot of stuff going on isn't there in the world all around us and I don't know what's happening in your own specific section of existence what's taking place or unfolding in your own domain but um, yeah it's uh, it's a challenge it's a challenge I think to to stay calm and not lose your mind over over so many different things over so many different things maybe we need, maybe I don't know maybe it's it. we need to have the, uh, the network moment um, and be Peter Finch sticking his head out the window and screaming he's not going to take it anymore um, I refer to the, the 70s movie with um, Faye Dunaway uh, amongst others was Ned Beatty in that as well tv station and a very very, um, prescient look at popular media and control of the message and private interference in in uh in journalism um in public commentary and the frustration of of people involved and journalists trying to keep their morals and their ethics in the place where they want them and not have to be stifled by censorship or compromise or money led messaging it's um it's is that not is that not as topical now is that not more topical than ever with how we receive news the messaging that we receive via mainstream media, mainstream channels. Um, look, I'm not a I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not out to take down institutions, uh, but it does seem that a lot of mainstream media has just drifted to a very centrist position, um, not really nailing their colours to the mast. Uh, entirely clearly and transparently, um, and and and, and I've, I've said this before. I've said this before on the podcast. Voices. It's my impression over the last ten, fifteen years, maybe a bit longer, that voices of the left, more socialist-leaning, socialist-minded voices, have become quieter and quieter and less convicted um, in this time frame. I'm I'm, I'm talking about and politicians who used to be on the left are barely recognizable as that anymore no one's really sure what they stand for or represent and something has transpired in the media where it's just it just doesn't feel entirely credible or dependable um, now I wouldn't go to Trumpian extremes and uh, completely dismiss the news, uh, fake news, or I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't lend that any credibility. However, I think sometimes we do have to not just accept what's being presented to us, and try and dig a little deeper, um, or at the very least, just question um, the reliability of the narrative that we're being offered. I did. I did raise this issue, um, at the start of the the the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Ukraine Ukraine Russian conflict. Um, I was just just being a little bit circumspect about the the sort of one note presentation of that narrative, as much as I think I think the invasion, um, and you know the action of the actions of the Russian military, Putin's. Um, kind of directive I I think it's all I think it's wrong I think it's been you know it's a very wrong headed move I think Putin has grossly um, underestimated the pushback he was going to receive although it does seem that Germany has tacitly um, tacitly condoned or certainly not offered uh, more stern resistance to to russia in the form of sanctions because it's so dependent on russian fuel uh, for energy um anyway look i didn't want to go down that road i wasn't trying to get into a big political discussion right off the bat but there there i went nonetheless um but further to that further to the the media narratives uh this week in irish media to um two Irish MEPs, two Irish members of European Parliament have uh, been receiving a lot of attention uh, because they've been, what? They've been outspoken in defence of certain sort of authoritarian regimes. Again, like, you know, you start using the language and I, I, I think, okay, where did I get that phrase? that, that just been bumped over to me from mainstream media. Um, but... I haven't dug I haven't dug deep enough into their story to to really work out what um you know the, the extent of their um sorry the extent of their commitment to uh you know non-unapproved regimes so these are two figures who would be considered I mean, not major players in the Irish political scene or in the European political scene, but they've they seem to have carved out a little corner for themselves being somewhat iconoclastic and you know standing up for uh, you know resisting just the, the the given or the received narrative um, and have made a bit of a name for themselves in in what I suppose you could. Objectively, call authoritarian um, institutions in countries like China and Russia, and they get a lot of exposure on their media um, for not towing the sort of the, the the Western line in terms of the narrative around the uh, the actions of those countries, and they 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 get they seem to get a lot of airtime and are perceived and presented as very high-profile, high-power uh, political movers um, from the West. But they're sort of being laughed at over here. And there was a big piece in one of the, the you know, mainstream uh, newspapers here at the weekend, which I read it and I don't know, I just didn't come away feeling that much clearer about the, 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 the reason for outrage and... Um, it did feel a bit like a hit piece um, and I don't know I just kind of I, I didn't really know quite what to make of it I just thought I, I, yeah I, so I mean I, I don't know what point I'm making here but I just felt like I don't hardly really trust this piece that's kind of going look at these Egypts and what they're up to and the profile they're enjoying uh, elsewhere um, I feel like there, there's more to it and then I, I, feel, I find myself getting frustrated because I'm like, will someone just kind of lay it out for me in more transparent, more honest terms? What's the real deal here? Um, but I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's a sign of the times. It's a sign of how we're consuming um, consuming the events of the world, how we consume political events and it's like there seems to be just like one hook to hang a story on and that's what's laid down as dogma and then it becomes a nice soundbite you know, over your morning coffee or across social media and again there's just a lack of it seems to me anyway, like certainly in mainstream media there's a lack of coherent and cohesive um, and again I use the word transparent, counter-narratives um but anyway look there you go sorry that's uh that's the first 10 minutes gone just like that and i'm on the clock today i've got a very tiny window to get this one done and the you know my opener there is not unconnected to the the larger thrust of today's episode because i want to i do want to talk about um society and philosophy and Uh, I'm going to refer to a couple of old English philosophers um, John Locke and John Stuart Mill who really belong to a line of political uh, liberalism Um, and I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper on those guys in, in a while I did look at both of them when I was a philosophy student back in the day um but yeah i'm just trying to decide what my my starting point is here i tell you what it is look really simply my starting point is this last uh last week or within the last week and a half um in 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 the west of ireland two gay men were murdered um in their homes and it a bit similar to the, the murder of the young woman at the start of this year when she was out for a run which I spoke about in, a, in an earlier episode this year um, the sort of um, I suppose the, the the brutality of the attacks the senselessness of the attacks the sort of um, repellent Aspect of the 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 attacks that you know that have led to these deaths um, have just struck a chord across the country. It would seem, and there was um, a very strong uh, reaction across the country last week um, to the murder of these two gay men, and there were a series of vigils and uh, some very. Outspoken uh, and, in my opinion, you know, righteous condemnation of the attacks and a condemnation of homophobia. And uh, a prominent um, imam from uh, a Muslim organization in Ireland spoke in Dublin and condemned homophobia in all its forms and the othering of members of. lbgti communities um and anyone who identifies um under that that um you know under that umbrella term and i mean i i certainly thought that was a very a very a very positive um a very positive thing to see i mean again i have a a knee-jerk um you know, before I engage my brain, I often have a, a knee-jerk reaction re- reaction, and assume if if it's a member of the church speaking, whether it's, you know, Islam or whether it's a Catholic church, I often have a knee-jerk assumption that it's going to be a conservative position. Um, and it's refreshing um, to be surprised and just to be reminded, hold on, you know, you know, things change, attitudes change and, you know, you know people of the cloth uh, if you like um, imams and priests and whoever uh, they change too because you know, there's, there's, there, are, there are generational shifts but you know I also had the cynical I also had the cynical thought that for many organised religions um, and you know this will be more obvious maybe in uh, countries that have you know seeded ground or you know enjoyed the revolution um, towards secularism and particularly like in, in Ireland if you think about the the sort of the very negative aspects of the the dominance and the control of the Catholic Church in Ireland and the the social uh, repression um, that came with that and all the damage that was part of that 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 package if you will um you know it, it for for i think for many irish people they reflect on the the rapid sort of ascension away from that part of irish history into you know something far more tolerant and inclusive and diverse and progressive um you know the, the, the you know I, I would argue that you you know you you shop you know you you ship out the the church and avoid i i would argue like a void was left behind and i mean i'm not religious i'm not a church guard that's not my background that wasn't my childhood background um but i think i i do sort of value the the i value the presence of the sacred in life and I value the presence of the spiritual and I value the presence of places where that can be engaged with in, you know, in safe ways. But in any case, speaking of safety, I'll go back to, you know, really what started the my cogs turning for this week's episode was just reflecting on those two men who were killed and how I think in very... You know, unambiguous terms they were, were victims of, of, of hate crime um, and I, it does seem there's a bit of a moratorium on commentary in the media at the moment because the suspect is in custody um, and the suspect had a name that suggested he was from or is from perhaps um, uh, an, a Muslim culture um i'm not sure uh, about the details of exactly where he's from but it, it did seem to trigger um a a response of sort of islamophobia uh on top of the homophobia um you know to put that into the kind of into the the, the cauldron into the mix of the the outrage and the disgust um the sort of the the horror at the at the murders last week um and I think that's why the imam I referred to earlier you know felt compelled to speak out, and as I said, a very I thought you know very a very welcome contribution to the to the discussion and to the reaction and and nice to see the you know the vigils around the country and people coming out and members of the um you know LGBTI mm-hmm. community. I left out the queue there, didn't I? LGBTQTI communities coming out in solidarity uh, to express their their grief, to express their anger. Um, I did see someone on social media, kind of reminding people that the Pride flag or Pride parades they're not they're not celebrations; they're protests. Um, now, you know that's that's one person's perspective, but certainly a protest as well as a, a celebration. Um, I think the one of the the lines I, I seem to recall from previous, I don't know, from seeing something somewhere, I was like, you know, we, you know, we're queer and we're here. Um, I'm like, yeah, like, it, 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 this idea though that to not be safe, like everyone should feel safe. Now that might not be a realistic idea. I mean, if that that might that that might be naive in the extreme. Um, you know, we can argue that none of us is ever safe. Really, you know, anything could happen to any of us at any time. However, that could be a little bit disingenuous if you think, well, yeah, fine, but you know, what's your gender? Um, you know, what social class are you from? Um, you know, what, what are let's look at the kind of the let's do like a risk analysis and how likely is it that you are going to be targeted how likely is it that you're going to be attacked um, how safe do you feel like actually like how safe do you feel like walking down the street or the road at night how safe do you feel being in certain parts of your town your village their city wherever you live you know what places do you do you know do you feel you can safely confidently walk in anywhere and be yourself comfortably without fear of uh, some form of an attack, uh, whether that's you know verbal um, or otherwise, um, and that's when things get a lot more nuanced and a lot more shaded and. It's like this this was kind of the area I was interested in kind of looking at not not specifically safety but this idea of you know how do we how do we sort of assess or get a read for where a society is at and where a country is at like what are the prevailing attitudes so with the Ashling Murphy murder in January there was an intense period of debate around um the topic of you know violence against women and women being afraid and you know the the question being asked like what was men's role in helping that be a better situation and i tried to explore that conversation with um just with a little bit more uh, complexity than I kind of perceived was happening in the immediate aftermath. And you know, this is the thing, like when we're emotional, we don't always think clearly. And I think we're living in very sort of emotive, emotional times where everyone's kind of subjective experience is being validated to the nth degree. And these sort of screaming matches take place on uh you know across social media um and twitter is a you know particularly contentious battlefield um and i i find myself just like you know from a I uh, from an anecdotal anecdotal point of view like i see what twitter throws up on my phone like they you know r- you know randomly algorithmically select someone's tweet for me to look at it just pops up like a headline on my phone and it's never something benign. It's never something that's fully clear um, in, in what they actually kind of present. It's always a hook. It's always a little stab. It's often someone expressing outrage or indignation. It might involve somebody swearing at someone or at something. And they're always these kind of little cliffhanger You know, I've done this and this is why. And, you know, it's instant agitation. It's instant provocation. And it's horrible. And I've just kind of, I've stopped, I've stopped looking, I've stopped kind of responding with the sort of human response of, you know, openness and curiosity. And I'm just looking at purely... From an analytical point of view going let's look at that tweet i've been presented it's designed to get me to click it's designed to get me to go down the rabbit hole on twitter and you know and back and forth with all the outraged contributors to this thread this conversation and it is an adjutant it is an irritant it unsettles it disrupts and that is like twitter is a key component in the media landscape now it's a key component in where discussions happen it's a key component it's key it's a key uh, you know battleground where opinions are you know belted off one another and i think <laughs> it's one reason I'm, i rarely put anything up on twitter that isn't completely innocuous um because so i'm just like i just don't want the stress i don't want the conflict uh, and yet i do find myself looking at certain people more than others and going, oh you know they they seem to be able to use twitter um very well to you know express themselves and to um you know represent their brand uh you know whatever um and i go no i haven't i just haven't got the knack so i i i use twitter merely to go Check out what the latest episode of the podcast. See you later. Boom, I'm out. Um, but in any case, looking at the reaction to you know the, the murder, the double murder last week of those guys, and looking at the reaction around the country, um, I was trying to kind of go well, you know what what what's this telling us? What's this telling us about where we're at? And what? You know what? What? What can we do better? Like that, that. was one of my first. You know, one of my first kind of in, in sort of um, let's call it a conscientious sort of reaction was how do you improve this situation so you're not contributing to an to a to a like a, a structure that that might foster or just not impede homophobia like so specifically in this case homophobia Um, now I suppose in my own life and certainly in my role as a teacher over the years in classrooms when things came about organically in a classroom where it was an opportunity to I suppose fundamentally to encourage if not actively promote tolerance and if not tolerance of action certainly tolerance of thought tolerance of thinking Um, and I was always from really the very early days of going into classrooms as a replacement teacher I was sort of always a quite a passionate advocate of um you know, really have a very sort of humanistic approach to to understanding other people other choices and whatever i was teaching if there was a if if there was to me what seemed like an obvious link or opportunity to to raise a question around tolerance um, i wouldn't hesitate to take it um, because I don't know, I guess I was bringing in again, bringing in certain assumptions about kind of closed mindedness or assumptions about maybe other teachers not having sufficient time to, you know, to, to sort of open the floor to tricky subjects, maybe around, you know, sexuality or maybe around things like sectarianism, even, you um, you know this kind of area but this idea then of of tolerance like i found myself thinking last week you know what is you know what 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 is the best way forward um because i was trying to think of it in like in philosophical terms and the the good or the the merit or the worth of tolerance and i was kind of looking at that idea in you know in that kind of simplistic form and kind of going well you know if we're all more tolerant you know if tolerant is put forward as a desirable principle of social cohesion um that is you know to my mind that's like, okay, that's a that's a good starting point, that we're going to be tolerant of other people, we're going to be tolerant of other people's choices. I mean, fundamentally, that's the social pact, isn't it? Like, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, we'll agree not to kill each other, and we'll, you know, play by this set of rules that have been laid out. Um, I don't expect you to have exactly the same values as me, but this basic principle of mutual tolerance of difference is how we're going to cohabit in this society um and that is okay like it's certainly not bad um but it can lend itself to non-interference and non-interference you know in the lives of others you kind of go well that's good that's good let people you know it's kind of a libertarian idea you know do what you want not just doesn't affect me off you go um but non-interference can become a sort of a looking away And non-interference can become a sort of a, a disingenuous harmony And non-interference can be basically the road to conspiracies of of silence and certainly that was a very um painful and dark aspect of irish society when ireland was really in the you know in 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 the earlier days of its independence i suppose and becoming you know coming out of colonialism and asserting itself as a sovereign state um but the 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 state and the church were inextricably linked and i suppose the through the the 50s and 60s in particular um that social and sexual repression um that was you know that went hand in hand with the kind of rigid dogmatic catholicism that held sway in ireland at that time um was you know was really destructive and the there was a huge intolerance embedded in in catholic dogma particularly around around you know extramarital sex and you know so many young women um had horrendous times um you know at the hands of the, the Catholic Church and I'm not even going to go, t- you know, to the, you know, stories of abuse um, in other, within other Catholic institutions but like, but but that said, that you know, that's all part of, you know, who wasn't talking about it, who was t- looking the other way and the fear of, you know, the power of the, you know, the priest or, the, you know, the parish priest or just the Catholic Church, the diocese, whatever it was, Um, And I think the the diminishment of that power has really been, you know, you know, a a celebratory uh, note for me in the kind of evolution of the modern Irish identity. Um, Now, that said, this is a little bit of a it's, it's a bit of a segue and I am going to return to this idea of tolerance. Um, momentarily, but just speaking of yeah, modern Irish society at the moment, you know, great. You know, there has been there has been great progress and in certain areas, and certainly in terms of um, you know sexual diversity and um, you know celebration of diversity across the spectrum um, of. Sexual identity and gender and what have you in Ireland. It's it's I think we've come to a very, you know, positive place And that's probably why last week's murders were so painful um, you know, Ireland in I think 2015 wasn't it brought in by kind of uh, popular vote uh, same-sex marriage and it was It was by a a kind of a a resounding um, majority and A real bright moment in um, in modern Irish history, Um, and also repealed the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution, which uh, prevented you know women from seeking abortions, um, and gave women more rights over their own bodies, which I am a big fan of in general. Um, So these have been kind of great advances, you know across Irish society uh, which couldn't have happened um back in that period I was talking about 50s 60s 70s even Uh, I mean homosexuality I think in Ireland was only made legal in 1993 I mean that's really not very long ago at all um but anyway just at the start of this month in Ireland we had a census and the the lovely people um who are responsible for the the census decided why don't we give people an opportunity to contribute to a time capsule at the end of the census and i'll just read it out for you here the time capsule uh, section of the census is just basically a blank page on the census form and it says information you provide in this time capsule is optional and is collected voluntarily under Section 24 of the Statistics Act 1993. This content is protected by the same confidentiality protections as all your census data for 100 years. After 100 years, this time capsule will be made available to the public. This space is for handwritten messages only. Photographs or other attachments will be removed and cannot be returned. So I offered my wife the opportunity to put something there and she wasn't too fussed. Uh, I didn't ask my daughter. Maybe that was a bit mean of me. And I was kind of contemplating, you know, you know, this is not coming from any kind of egotistical uh, position of leaving something for posterity. But sort of engaging with um an opportunity to record a comment on uh on ireland at this moment in time and i'll just read you what i wrote and you can decide for yourselves whether you think i'm a <laughs> whether you think i'm a raving uh lefty or whatever but um i'll just read you what i wrote here and I, it, it kind of ties in a little bit with what i'm talking about or maybe a lot I wrote, there are many things I continue to love about Ireland, and I will never be ashamed to say I am Irish. But for all the strides we have made as a society, it pains me to think that this moment will show that a hundred years after the end of the War of Independence, we are still a country that has failed to emerge functionally from the legacy of colonisation. Institutionally and governmentally, there continues to be profound systemic failure. We have yet to be served by a government that has sufficient confidence and moral conviction to lay the groundwork for a long-term vision of economic and social sustainability. We have yet to be served by a government that prioritises the future wellness and security of of all the people of this unique and beautiful island. I hope that confidence and vision is the place from which you read this. Dara Age, eight and a half. <laughs> uh, so that's what I wrote. Um, I didn't want to make it too. I, I, you know, it wasn't meant to be ragey or furiously condemnatory of... Um, of Ireland in that in this moment. But I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that isn't working. And I felt I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure I'm not the only one who wrote something along those lines. Um we've a long we've still got a long way to go. There's still way too much social and economic instability in this country and maybe that's something not maybe like I mean that's probably part of a, a global trend it's probably part of a a global pressurisation of unbridled capitalism um, and profiteering and oh, I don't know I mean the I have insufficient vocabulary to really explore the uh, the economic nuances of how we've got to this point but yeah there's there has been a failure there has been a failure uh i think globally to to um distribute to distribute wealth to prioritize things um that should be fundamental aspects of human thriving uh across the globe uh some countries have done it better than others some countries have failed miserably. Ireland I don't know like we're a very small country we're a very small country and maybe I maybe I overestimate how much power the Irish government has to assert its will Um, and maybe I overestimate how much power an Irish government has to resist the interests and influences of much more powerful players internationally Uh, and when a big tech company waves its checkbook <laughs> if anyone is still using a checkbook um i'm not sure i'm not sure how old they are or what's going on in their little head but uh, if a big tech company waves its checkbook and the irish government just goes yep yes sir what can we do for you or yes ma'am um i mean apple apple was using um a, an address in ireland which was you know seemed to be basically like a tax washing uh front and they got caught and this was done with the blessing of the Irish government and then I think it was the, the EU was kind of cracking the whip and said okay Apple you have to pay the Irish government all this tax and the Irish government were bending over backwards to try and let Apple off the hook and not get them to pay the tax and that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the Irish political mindset it's so small it's so lacking in self-esteem. Um, it's so obsequious. It's pathetic, and it disgusts me. Um, but that kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of bad, a lot of bad language is floating through my brain at the moment. But that kind of short-term opportunism is. Is a hallmark of the way many Irish governments seem to operate. Um, very careerist, very what's going to get me through the next election, what's going to help me keep my seat. The historically um, opposed parties in Ireland of uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, um, you know, <laughs> two parties which would have had, you know, nothing but contempt for each other historically. But they frantically, frantically formed an alliance after the last general election in Ireland, because it looked for the first time since the institution of Irish independence that they weren't going to be the party of power. And they were so horrified at this prospect that they threw all their principles out the window and said, "Let's be friends, because we don't want the other party to get in." Sinn Fein and Sinn Fein were you know, enjoying a huge boost in popularity because they were being really outspoken about the political failings and institutional failings of the previous governments. And they weren't basically, they're were basically saying, we're not going to tolerate this anymore and we need a government that doesn't tolerate this kind of failure, uh, particularly in the area of housing. Um, and I mean, the, the, you know, healthcare is in terrible shape here as well. Um, and again, it's a governmental failure. It's not a failure of the individual's, it's not a failure of nurses and doctors who are killing themselves trying to provide service and cater to the Irish populace. It's it's a failure of the system. It's a failure of investment. It's a failure of vision. It's a failure of planning. And sadly, I think that those things are continue to be part and parcel of how Irish governments don't. Um, you know, they're they're not they're simply not fit for service anyway there you go this is a political party broadcast on behalf of hashtag blessed um you know in an ideal world it would be like this now again i'm keeping an eye on the time and i want to go to these two english philosophers uh who i we mentioned earlier and have a quick look at what they said um what they said about tolerance um so I was kind of saying earlier, like, the, 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 this kind of reaction I had to, you know, how do, how do we, like, you know, check the state of the nation? How do we make things better? How, if you're a member of um, the LGBTQI um, community, how do you go forward after last week's um, murders and feel this is a good place to be? the outpouring of public grief and solidarity and anger would certainly be a comfort but i did see one person on um on twitter as it happens um saying that it was pointed out to him that the the day of the murders was uh nine years to the day since he had been gay bashed and yeah that just struck me you know like that it's you know the 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 term the specificity of you know you're gay so we're gonna we're just gonna attack you and that hatred and that violence um i mean I'm, i'm sort of fascinated and yeah well i mean fascinated about you know where that comes from and where that's located and what does it say about the the perpetrator of the crime. Um I suppose there was speculation last week that perhaps um you know if the if the the, the suspect uh, of those murders is um a Muslim, was it informed by uh Muslim beliefs or something from the Quran? Um my feeling always around the area of homophobia, um in whatever form it comes out, if that's directed at someone who's uh gay or trans or bi or lesbian or whatever, I I mean, I suppose nowadays I, I don't necessarily think it's it's located in an in, in an area of morality or as connected to religious dogma or religious teaching. Um and maybe that's a bit naive because I suppose in different areas of the world those belief systems are more present and more powerful and more conditioning of of um someone's mind and mindset and outlook personally i've always felt it indicates um indicates the, the 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 perpetrators relationship with their own sexuality and their own sexual impulses and why they perceive um you know the, you know for the sake of my argument i'm going to use the phrase why they perceive the other ...as a threat. Um, I mean, from my own personal point of view... ...I've never felt threatened by homosexuality. Because I'm like, yeah, but that's grand. I mean, they're not interested in me. And I'm not trying to put it into like a predatorial context. I'm... I don't know. It just was like... It doesn't... There's no... There's no impact on my own sexual interest are on my own sexuality my relationship with my own sexuality and i'm talking about t- going back to you know very young age um it just didn't even occur to me to to factor in like where does homosexually fit into my spectrum and i mean i'm t- you know i i didn't have an impulse in that direction um my you know my own impulses seem to be always very heterosexual and you know homosexuality in 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 the kind of in the mix of well how is this going to impact me or the expression of my sexuality or why would i be threatened by it it just it it was like a just a non-event or a non-entity um and i didn't feel threatened or awkward or put off or intimidated or or i suppose you know a key component maybe for some people who experience um homophobia um is you know repugnance or repulsion you know being repelled by the idea of oh and i mean i I used to observe that reaction in certain of my male friends um just a sort of a, a profound physical discomfort uh even around the idea of um of gay sex or being approached by someone who was gay uh I mean, my self-esteem was, you know, so chronically low. I mean, I'd be like, you're gay and you think I'm attractive. I'm like, oh, thank, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm not worthy. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, like, joking aside, it's, like, I, I would still instinctively go to that place if I think some man, as it does seem, you know, broadly, you know, the perpetrators are, are men of... That type of hate crime, I'm. I just want to ask them, like, what's, what's the anger? Like, where's the, where's this anger and hatred coming from? Why does it have to go this far? We have to lay hands on this person. Um, I mean, I find it profoundly offensive, and, um, oh, I don't know. I don't know. What, what, I don't know. If, I'm, I'm trying to just say where it sits for me. I mean, the idea that you could stand by and watch someone attack someone because they're gay um, and some part of your brain would square that away or legislate it and go, ah, yeah, well, I get... There's no... For me, it's like, what are you talking about? It's just so... It's so objectifying and so... um, It's so non-personal and yet... My argument is that there's a deeply personal component for the person, you know, perpetrating the crime. That they're being driven by a deeply internal reaction or response to homosexuality or whatever it might be. And then anybody can represent the threat. Anybody can represent the trigger. Um, And in that way to me it's almost like it's as it's as it's as impersonal as having like a fear of spiders or hating cats um i mean that's that that should be that term should be verboten on this podcast we're very much a a pro-cat household we don't other the cats in this household um so yeah so i don't know look i I, i'm sorry I'm, i'm being a little bit rambly and i apologize but i'm just quite sort of sounding it out as i speak and as i record but again, I'm going to return now to these um, these two these two English philosophers um, because I'm interested in what they had to say about sort of the organisation of social morality, about liberalism, about tolerance, and you know how it relates to then my kind of my, my counter argument or my secondary sort of my follow on thought after that initial response last week of, um, you know, the good of tolerance. I mean, that's what we should all be preaching is like, let's be tolerant. Um, and then I went to that, the kind of the, the, the next logical step for me is, it, is, is actually, is it more powerful to be intolerant of, of bad behavior? Like, is that, is that actually better for society? So then we have to look at the, the good of intolerance. And so if, if we're being intolerant of behavior that we instinctively or, or intellectually and morally recognize this is wrong, this is destructive, this, um, this sort of infringement of someone else's rights um, compromises me as well. Because there's an implication um, whereby I'm not asserting my right to uphold tolerance if I do nothing, and then it reminds us of the you know the, the the you know it's a bit hackneyed, it's a bit of a cliche, and I didn't bother going to look up where the quote came from, but you know the line for evil to thrive, you only need good men to do nothing, um, I and mean, you know it can be all inclusive and let's go good women for good women to do nothing as well so for evil to thrive you only need good good people to do nothing good humans to do nothing but of course even that term good humans is very is very subjective you know what is a good human because maybe amongst homophobic circles some people might go well that suspect of you know in the murders is a good human because of his actions um you know and you get these kind of moral equivalencies uh in any case i'm just going to hit you with um just some very brief info um about these two english philosophers that i'm, I'm <laughs> i keep mentioning and then fail to actually go there but i'm gonna go there right now so john Locke, john Locke, an english philosopher thinker um he was born in 1632 so 17th century died in 1704 and he was an empiricist and basically the the idea behind uh, empiricism is everything you know knowledge is fact-based it's what you can see it's what you can test it's what you can prove and John Locke is also considered the father of liberalism so a sort of a a tolerant political attitude or a tolerant um, political stance uh he argued that humans should have three natural rights life liberty and property so a right and a duty to preserve their own lives and a right to own property a right um to be free to to live your life and to pursue ownership of property um and his belief was that and i i hold with this really i mean there's there's probably a bit more science now to suggest other things can be in place but he was a great believer in tabula rasa uh the blank slate idea of when a human is born the brain is is empty it's a blank slate and data or data if you prefer data and rules come via the senses so the sensory processing of the world around us is what brings information into the brain and brings the the rules uh, which presumably come from the society, society into which we have been born um and fundamentally i suppose that's a you know it it brings in the argument of um of of nurture i mean that wasn't really where he was coming from but i mean that's that's one argument isn't it that we're all just products of of nurture um but there are there are studies out there that disprove that idea now i'm gonna have to fish it out here because i had to i was coming to peruse online earlier to refresh my memory um, you know, John Locke had a few, you know, interesting, um, a few interesting things to say. He has a famous piece called "A Letter Concerning Toleration." That's from sixteen eighty nine, um, and he argued that tolerance is indeed a Christian virtue. So, he was uh, coming from a, a Christian position. Um, But he said very interestingly, and, you know, Ireland certainly would have benefited from this in the 20th century, that the state as a civic association should be concerned only with civic interests, not spiritual ones. So, um, I mean, fundamentally arguing for separation of state and church. Um, Now, he had something else I saw earlier, which I thought was quite interesting. Let me see. Do 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 no no hmm uh, maybe not I think maybe that was the only one um yeah okay so that was John Locke great yay um so yeah if John Locke then is fundamentally advocating for the the um prioritization of civic interests over over the over spiritual interests or church interests I mean straight away that's laying down a different pathway uh, for tolerance um, because it's not being informed by religious teachings it's not being informed by you know religious dogma um, which we have seen through history has been used to to exclude and to demonize and to other and there's no question that um homosexuality uh, and you think of like how homosexuality has probably been condemned uh, historically under the sort of abrahamic religions um and so john locke you'd have to say was a progressive and you know in that aspect that's where the sort of the, the, you know, the liberalism comes in. So the freedom to pursue uh, one's own life free from persecution. Now, a hundred years later, um, 1806, John Stuart Mill was born. and um, He died in 1873. So, um, yeah, quite a bit later than John Stuart Mill. But following in a similar, in a similar tradition, And John Stuart Mill was probably primarily known and is primarily known as an advocate of utilitarianism. And he described the the principle that held that actions are right in proportion as they tend to promote happiness and wrong as they tend to produce the reverse of happiness um so uh you know a very you know without exploring it like on a very basic level being led by i mean i want to i want to exchange out happiness um uh, and put in good um because really that's where he was ultimately coming from um so you're talking about, you know the actions that promote the good and happiness um is integral to the good uh, and wrong as they produce the, you know, the bad, which leads to the reverse of of happiness. Um, so he had other really interesting things to say in this area as well. Um, and was very big on this idea that, like, you know, society as a whole needs to be moving in the right direction. So he was a great advocate of, you know, again, a very liberal idea of, you know, live your own life. Um, but then he had this idea called the harm principle, where he said, like, the right to self-determination is is not, um, you know, is not unlimited. Um, and that if the actions of an individual are going to harm um, society, then society has the right to intervene or the government has the right to intervene. So he had this kind of overarching idea of, you know, the promotion of a of a sort of a happy society that's moving in the right direction, the direction of good, um, and he had also. Again, I'm, I'm just hitting you with these quotes because I think they all tie into the idea of of kind of values and what you stand for. And what you're willing to tolerate and what you're not willing to tolerate. So here's another one from from John Stuart Mill. And again, you know, the language, it's, it's gendered because it's of the time. So, you know, don't get, uh, don't get all caught up about this. A man who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing which is more important than his own personal safety, is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made... And kept so by the exert by the exertions of better men than himself. So, you know, there's a you know, it's this, that one's a little bit thorny. You know, when you get to the end, yeah, you, know, you can't be free unless you're made free and kept free by the exertions of better men than himself. But I mean, then what are we talking about? Are we talking about public representatives, the people who set the legislation, who set the laws, um, who raise the bills? Um, you know, perhaps. In, you know he was thinking in those terms, he was um a parliamentarian, he was a member of the the you know, the English Parliament as well, but that idea of prioritizing a principle of belief um and like of ethical belief is a big part of what John Stuart Mill was about as well. so a man who has a person who has nothing for which they are willing to fight. Nothing that is more important than their own personal safety. So immediately what you're doing is someone's thinking of the bigger picture and someone is saying, like, if I bring it back to what's kind of driving this, uh, this, this kind of discussion today, someone who kind of believes that people shouldn't be persecuted um, because of their, because of their sexual identity and shouldn't be persecuted because of their gender identity and they certainly they shouldn't be othered they shouldn't be abused they shouldn't be attacked and we're not going to tolerate that um because there's there's far more important things that affect us all um and in that regard i suppose that's a utilitarian idea like because it's like the greater good like what affects all of us and someone's sexual preference I don't think it affects us. I don't think it affects us. And, you know, you can go into the the argument of, um, you know, raising children, having children. I mean, I'd rather see a child happy. I'd rather see a child raised in a solid, happy, loving, supportive, same-sex home, same-sex household, same-sex relationship than in a crappy heterosexual relationship so i mean that's a whole other area like what does a child need does a child need you know does does it does does a child need strictly you know hetero role models because you can talk about you know male energy female energy and it doesn't happen it doesn't have to reside in a male body or a female body and speaking of which my cousin threw something up online. <laughs> Not my cousin here at hashtag blessed. Another cousin uh, who's very smart in the the science area and the uh, the um, the astronomy area. That's a nice clue for you now. You'll know which cousin it is if you if you know me. Um, she put up something online that she snatched off social media, where a biologist was breaking down how complex um gender identification is at a chromosome level and i mean i will i will utterly fail to give you the fine points of this but it just i walked away from what she put up and kind of went all right okay so really you know gender on a biological level on a cellular level on a dna level on a chromosome level it just i I walked away going all right any of us could be anything and so this outward form doesn't actually give us the real read of gender. And actually, it's really bloody hard to tell you what gender is. So then you start going, well, is gender a social construct? Um no, I don't I, <laughs> I'm not gonna get into that water.' It's, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm a good swimmer, but I will drown. I will drown in that water. Um, but anyway, the the whole idea then of sexual identity, gender identity, ...having this profoundly destructive impact on anyone's life... ...I'm like, get the hell out of here. Let people live their lives and sleep with who they want... ...and be in love with who they want. Because, you know, I, I want to see better healthcare... ...I want to see better housing. They're the priorities. Um, and, you know, gender, sexual identity... ...sexual prefer- preference, sexual behaviour... ...we'll get to a point. We will get to a point, And I think it's going to come around really soon, actually... ...where it just won't be a conversation. It won't be an issue... Um and people need to just bloody wake up and get into the, you know, come into the 21st century. That sort of into, you know intolerance of sexual um, diversity, there's no place for it anymore. It's just, we should be operating at a much higher level. We, we should be much further down the track in terms of what socially concerns us um yeah and here here's something else here's something else Now, this i think is from um for some reason i think this is like an american legal position um yeah because it says one premise underlying first amendment jurisprudence is the tolerance theory the belief that promoting expressive freedoms will make individuals and institutions more open to ideas than they would be otherwise. And the origin of this idea can be traced to, yes, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, also from 1869. So expressive freedoms. I, I took a beat to go, what do they mean by that? So the, the, the freedom of expression. And that's the expression of your sexual identity. That's the expression of perhaps your religious beliefs. That's the expression of your political beliefs. Um, you know it's the the you know freedom of speech fundamentally isn't it in in the American system um and having that freedom extended to everyone will make all individuals and institutions more open to ideas that they would be than they would be otherwise, so a really strong liberal idea, and what that should point out to you is the danger then of of cancel culture, the danger of shutting people up the danger of no platforming people, the danger of not having more information out there. It's so patronizing and it's so juvenile, which are, they, they sound like they should be sort of coming from opposite ends of the spectrum, but like it's patronizing to the people who would receive that information. It's patronizing to the people who would receive that opinion or that diatribe or that point of view. And it's so juvenile the you know the people who are doing the censoring to to cancel someone to shut them up to lock them in a room to kick them out of the playground to go you can't play with us you can't be in our playground it doesn't matter bloody hell you know are you terrified of an opinion that's different to yours and are you terrified to engage with someone whose behavior you find intolerable um you can challenge them you can express disagreement. Um, but I mean, you know, and of course, let's be clear here, if you're talking about behaviour that that crosses over into criminality, if you're talking about behaviour that results in violence or murder, as it did last week, I mean, there should be no ambiguity about, well, yeah, you, you, you're, you're getting put away. Um, and as a society, we're not going to tolerate that any more than you, you want to tolerate anyone getting murdered or bashed um. So, so yeah. So that then comes back to the my my media kind of gripe earlier. Um, in today's episode. Um. Okay. So I'm sure there was. I'm sure there was one other. I'm just kind of scrolling, th- scrolling through my, my notes here. Um. I thought there might have been one other nice one. Um. Dum 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 Yeah. Maybe. Yeah I mean Stuart Mill he's just he's just good on lots of things um, you know he talks about the tyranny of the majority uh, an inherent weakness to majority rule in which the majority of an electorate pursues exclusively its own objectives at the expense of those of the minority factions um, and so that's what you know again that also speaks to today's climate where uh, you know on on sort of the progressive side of media you've got people being grotesquely intolerant of of counter opinions um and trying to shut them out it's uh like i said like i said moments ago it's 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 a very juvenile way to to interact and it doesn't lead to anyone's political or intellectual um edification um John Stuart Mill also wrote an essay in 1869 with his wife, who's Harriet Mill, I think, called The Subjection of Women. And he said the legal subordination of one sex to the other is wrong in itself and it is the chief hindrance to human improvement. Um, And again, at the time, that was probably just a real binary debate um, the rights of women versus the rights of men but you know as we've seen we're, we're we're branching that out now and in the context of sort of culture wars and identity politics uh, the subordination the legal subordination of anyone to someone else um, in, a, in a free society is um, is going to be a hindrance to human improvement and so then it comes back to Social and economic opportunity, an equal social and economic opportunity for, for everyone, um, and that's what you want. In I think that's what you, that's what I want in a a healthy, happy, democratic society. A distribution of wealth, um, uh, a sensible, long term vision for the 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 spending of taxes. On things that are securing a better future for all of us, and that includes every single member of the LGBTQI community and everybody else as well. So, there you go. I think I'm going to have to wrap it up there. I'm not sure what the uh, the concluding note for today's episode is. Um, I will say, sexuality. ...and the expression of one's sexuality is not morality. Sexuality is not a value system. Um, Sexuality shouldn't come into the field of ethics and morality... ...as long as it's taking place between consenting adults. And if part of your morality or ethical view forbids certain iterations of sexuality and certain expressions of consensual adult sexuality then I think the problem's with you. I think you need to have a look at your morality and have a look at why those expressions of sexual identity or gender identity are so threatening to your moral structure. Um, yeah I mean that's a I think that's a really key component of all of this uh, sexuality is an expression of identity it is an expression of one's um, civic liberty it should be an expression of that it's an expression of one's um, identity one's desire um, an expression of what what one is attracted to and that shouldn't that shouldn't threaten anyone um as long as again i think the the consensual nature i mean the consensual nature i mean you can be attracted to who you're attracted to but then you've got to look at and then this brings us back to the the social civic political discussion like what what is society tolerating um and there are there are rules that make sense in terms of places you shouldn't go with your sex with your sexuality and your sexual desire in terms of the vulnerable um and those who are not in a position to consent but apart from that it should be you know do what you have to do and you shouldn't have to live in fear of any form of persecution um or fear that the intolerance of others is going to make itself felt in sinister destructive violent ways um, really what we're talking about is the, the 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 merits of the merits of tolerance and the merits of kind of ethically driven intolerance um, and being intolerant of bad behavior being intolerant of of homophobia, being intolerant of sexism but not just a blanket intolerance um you know having the conversation asking the question you know when when it's raised in an early stage in 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 more innocuous places like the the, you know the 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 arena of microaggressions to be able to go what's this about what's that coming from you know what is this threat you perceive and you know can we can i can, can we help you feel less threatened? Can we disarm you and just make you feel it's safe for you to express your your fears your concerns um I don't know, I don't know I mean it's like just yeah again let's let's be let's be talking, let's be examining, let's be supporting and not just uh not just canceling people um so so there you go i mean it, it, there's nothing like you know cancel culture is not healthy intolerance how about that how would i finish there cancel culture is not healthy intolerance it's juvenile intolerance and i'm not talking about not wanting to hang out with my daughter that's another that's another form of juvenile intolerance <laughs> Okay, I've got to go. I've got to go and teach some karate. Um, karate. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you stayed with me on this. I hope it hung together. Um, John Locke, John Stuart Mill, legends. <laughs> legends, love those guys. Love the Johnnies, the two Johnnies. There's two Johnnies I'd rather listen to than the uh, the other Egypts that are um, on the airwaves. Um, follow me on social media, The Clear Out Podcast on YouTube. On Instagram, on Facebook, The Clear Out 2 on Twitter. Email me at TheClearOutLive at gmail.com. Support me using the supporter link wherever you're listening to the podcast or become a patron at patreon.com forward slash clear Out. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you again real soon. All the best. Be kind, be tolerant, behave. I'll see you soon. All the best. Cheers. Bye.